Hello there, welcome back for another episode of Down to Sleep, the podcast of softly spoken stories to help you relax and fall asleep. Today I'm going to be reading The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. This is the free version of Down to Sleep, and if you would like to support the podcast, you can do so on Patreon at patreon.com slash downtosleep. In return, you will get episodes that are twice as long and bonus episodes at least once a week. That is also the way to hear continued story readings on the Patreon. You can hear an extra three episodes currently of Alice in Wonderland as I continue to read that book through to completion on the Patreon. But otherwise, thank you so much for being here and letting me read to you tonight. Go ahead and get yourself comfortable. And let's begin. The Great Gatsby. Chapter 1 In my younger and more vulnerable years, my father gave me some advice that I've been turning over in my mind ever since. Whenever you feel like criticizing anyone, he told me, just remember that all the people in this world haven't had the advantages that you've had. He didn't say any more, but we've always been unusually communicative in a reserved way, and I understood that he meant a great deal more than that. In consequence, I'm inclined to reserve all judgments, a habit that has opened up many curious natures to me, and also made me the victim of not a few veteran bores. The abnormal mind is quick to detect and attach itself to this quality when it appears in a normal person, and so it came about that in college I was unjustly accused of being a politician, because I was privy to the secret griefs of wild unknown men. Most of the confidences were unsought. Frequently I have feigned sleep, preoccupation, or a hostile levity when I realized by some unmistakable sign that an intimate revelation was quivering on the horizon. For the intimate revelations of young men, or at least the terms in which they express them, are usually plagiaristic and marred by obvious suppressions. Reserving judgments is a matter of infinite hope. I am still a little afraid of missing something if I forget that. As my father snobbishly suggested, and I snobbishly repeat, a sense of the fundamental decencies is parcelled out unequally at birth. And, after boasting this way of my tolerance, I come to the admission that it has a limit. Conduct may be founded on the hard rock or the wet marshes, but after a certain point, I don't care what it's founded on. When I came back from the East last autumn, I felt that I wanted the world to be in uniform and at a sort of moral attention forever. I wanted no more riotous excursions with privileged glimpses into the human heart. Only Gatsby, the man who gives his name to this book, was exempt from my reaction. Gatsby, who represented everything for which I have an unaffected scorn. If personality is an unbroken series of successful gestures, then there was something gorgeous about him. Some heightened sensitivity to the promises of life, as if he were related to one of those intricate machines that register earthquakes 10,000 miles away. This responsiveness had nothing to do with that flabby impressionability which is dignified under the name of the creative temperament. It was an extraordinary gift for hope, a romantic readiness such as I have never found in any other person, and which it is not likely I shall ever find again. No. Gatsby turned out all right at the end. It is what preyed on Gatsby, what foul dust floated in the wake of his dreams. 
that temporarily closed out my interest in the abortive sorrows and short-winded elations of men. My family have been prominent, well-to-do people in this middle western city for three generations. The Caraways are something of a clan, and we have a tradition that we've descended from the Dukes of Buccleuch, but the actual founder of my line was my grandfather's brother, who came here in 51, sent a substitute to the Civil War, and started the wholesale hardware business that my father carries on today. I never saw this great uncle, but I'm supposed to look like him, with special reference to the rather hard-boiled painting that hangs in father's office. I graduated from New Haven in 1915, just a quarter of a century after my father, and a little later, I participated in that delayed Teutonic migration known as the Great War. I enjoyed the counter-raid so thoroughly that I came back restless Instead of being the warm center of the world, the Middle West now seemed like the ragged edge of the universe, so I decided to go east and learn the bond business. Everybody I knew was in the bond business, so I supposed it could support one more single man. All my aunts and uncles talked it over as if they were choosing a prep school for me, and finally said, Why, yes, with very grave, hesitant faces father agreed to finance me for a year, and after various delays, I came east, permanently, I thought, in the spring of 22. The practical thing was to find rooms in the city, but it was a warm season, and I had just left a country of wide lawns and friendly trees, so when a young man at the office suggested that we take a house together in a commuting town, it sounded like a great idea. He found the house, a weather-beaten cardboard bungalow at eighty a month, but at the last minute the firm ordered him to Washington, and I went out to the country alone. I had a dog, at least I had him for a few days until he ran away, an old Dodge and a Finnish woman, who made my bed and cooked breakfast and muttered Finnish wisdom to herself over the electric stove. It was lonely, for a day or so until one morning some man more recently arrived than I stopped me on the road. How do you get to West Egg Village? he asked helplessly. I told him, and as I walked on I was lonely no longer. I was a guide, a pathfinder, an original settler. He had casually conferred on me the freedom of the neighborhood. And so, with the sunshine and the great bursts of leaves growing on the trees, just as things grow in fast movies, I had that familiar conviction that life was beginning over again with the summer. There was so much to read, for one thing, and so much fine health to be pulled down out of the young breath-giving air. I bought a dozen volumes on banking and credit and investment securities, and they stood on my shelf in red and gold, like new money from the mint, promising to unfold the shining secrets that only Midas and Morgan knew and I had the high intention of reading many other books besides. I was rather literary in college. One year I wrote a series of very solemn and obvious editorials for the Yale News, and now I was going to bring all such things into my life and become again that most limited of all specialists, the well-rounded man. This isn't just an epigram. Life is much more successfully looked at from a single window, 
after all. It was a matter of chance that I should have rented a house in one of the strangest communities in North America. It was on that slender, riotous island which extends itself due east of New York, and where there are, among other natural curiosities, two unusual formations of land. Twenty miles from the city, a pair of enormous eggs, identical in contour and separated only by Courtesy Bay, jut out into the most domesticated body of salt water in the Western Hemisphere, the great wet barnyard of Long Island Sound. They are not perfect ovals like the egg in the Columbus story. They are both crushed flat at the contact end. But their physical resemblance must be a source of perpetual wonder to the gulls that fly overhead. To the wingless, a more interesting phenomenon is their dissimilarity in every particular except shape and size. I lived at West Egg, the, well, less fashionable of the two, though this is a most superficial tag to express the bizarre and not a little sinister contrast between them. My house was at the very tip of the egg, only fifty yards from the sound, and squeezed between two huge places that rented for twelve or fifteen thousand a season. The one on my right was a colossal affair by any standard. It was a factual imitation of some hotel de ville in Normandy, with a tower on one side, spanking new under a thin beard of raw ivy, and a marble swimming pool, with more than forty acres of lawn and garden. Or, rather, as I didn't know Mr. Gatsby, it was a mansion inhabited by a gentleman of that name. My own house was an eyesore, but it was a small eyesore, and it had been overlooked, so I had a view of the water, a partial view of my neighbor's lawn, and the consoling proximity of millionaires, all for eighty dollars a month. Across the courtesy bay, the white palaces of the fashionable East Egg glittered along the water, and the history of the summer really begins on the evening I drove over there to have dinner with the Tom Buchanans. Daisy was my second cousin once removed, and I'd known Tom in college. Just after the war, I spent two days with them in Chicago. Her husband, among various physical accomplishments, had been one of the most powerful ends that ever played football at New Haven, a national figure in a way, one of those men who reached such an acute limited excellence at twenty-one that everything afterwards savors of anticlimax. His family were enormously wealthy, even in college, his freedom with money was a matter for reproach. But now he'd left Chicago and come east, in a fashion that rather took your breath away. For instance, he had brought down a string of polo ponies from Lake Forest. It was hard to realize that a man in my own generation was wealthy enough to do that. Why they come east, I don't know. They spent a year in France for no particular reason, and then drifted here and there unrestfully, wherever people played polo and were rich together. This was a permanent move, said Daisy over the telephone, but I didn't believe it. I had no sight into Daisy's heart, but I felt that Tom would drift on, forever seeking, a little wistfully, for the dramatic turbulence of some irrecoverable football game. And so it happened that on a warm, windy evening, I drove over to East Egg to see my two old friends whom I scarcely knew at all. Their house was even more elaborate than I expected. A cheerful red-and-white Georgian colonial mansion, 
overlooking the bay. The lawn started at the beach and ran towards the front door for a quarter of a mile, jumping over sundials and brick walks and burning gardens. Finally, when it reached the house drifting up the side in bright vines as though from the momentum of its run, the front was broken by a line of French windows, glowing now with reflected gold and wide open to a warm, windy afternoon. And Tom Buchanan, in riding clothes, standing with his legs apart on the front porch. He had changed since his New Haven years. Now he was a sturdy, straw-haired man of thirty, with a rather hard mouth and a supercilious manner. Two shining, arrogant eyes had established dominance over his face and gave him the appearance of always leaning aggressively forward. Not even the effeminate swank of his riding clothes could hide the enormous power of that body. He seemed to fill those glistening boots until he strained the top lacing, and you could see a great pack of muscle shifting when his shoulder moved under his thin coat. It was a body capable of enormous leverage, a cruel body. His speaking voice, a gruff husky tenor, added to the impression of fractiousness that he conveyed. There was a touch of paternal contempt in it, even towards people that he liked, and there were men at New Haven who had hated his guts. Now, don't think my opinion on these matters is final, he seemed to say. Just because I'm stronger and more of a man than you are. We were in the same senior society, and while we were never intimate, I always had the impression that he approved of me and wanted me to like him with some harsh, defiant wistfulness of his own. We talked for a few minutes on the sunny porch. I've got a nice place here, he said, his eyes flashing about restlessly. Turning me around by one arm, he moved a broad, flat hand along the front vista, including in its sweep a sunken Italian garden, a half-acre of deep, pungent roses, and a snub-nosed motorboat that bumped the tide offshore. It belonged to Domain, the oil man, he turned me around again politely and abruptly. We'll go inside. We walked through a high hallway into a bright rosy-colored space, fragilely bound into the house by French windows at either end. The windows were ajar and gleaming white against the fresh grass outside that seemed to grow a little way into the house. A breeze blew through the room, blew curtains in at one end and out the other, like pale flags twisting them up towards the frosted wedding cake of the ceiling, and then rippled over the wine-coloured rug, making a shadow on it, as the wind does on the sea. And that is where we shall close the book on this week's episode of Down to Sleep. If you would like to hear The Great Gatsby continued, then consider supporting the podcast at patreon.com slash downtosleep, where this episode will be at least twice as long, and there are bonus readings during the week including continued readings of Alice in Wonderland, Grimm's fairy tales, and more. We also have a poll going on at the moment to decide what I read next, so if you would like to take part in that or just support the podcast, then that is the place to do it. Either way, thank you so much for being a listener of the podcast. I really do hope that it helps you relax and get to sleep. That's really its main purpose here, and I enjoy reading to you. So thank you so much for joining me. Please continue to do so. And, uh, you know, tell a friend. Let's see if we can keep this podcast going. Thank you so much. Until next time, happy sleeping. Thank you.
and good night.